Chirp Radio's first time is a quarterly, live-lit music series recorded at Martyrs in North Center. The theme this round was First Try. I'm here tonight to talk about uh, my first try at kissing, uh, particularly kissing in the French style, an activity known as Frenching. In my junior high, there were just two grades, seven and eight. In 1992, I was in the seventh grade and my best friend Nicholas was in the eighth grade. It would be hard to overstate how remarkable this seemed to me at the time. I'm not sure what the social dynamics of your middle school were, but the fact that an eighth grader would travel down the social ladder on purpose in order to spend time with a seventh grader seemed to me at the time uh, to be insane. But this is what Nicholas did, and we remain friends to this day. If you are listening, Nicholas, hello. I'm speaking to you from the stage at Martyrs in Chicago. <laughs> As you can imagine, uh, there were many advantages to having an eighth grade friend being privy to all of the behind-the-scenes gossip about the school's winter production of Anne of Green Gables was a big one. <laughs> Having access to compact discs bearing a parental advisory sticker was another. Uh, but far and away, the most incredible advantage was being in proximity to a social circle that contained girls, something that I had at the time assumed was made possible by some unknown logic of the eighth grade, but I can see now must have been due to the social circumstances surrounding the aforementioned winter musical production. <laughs> in which Nicholas played a character named Gilbert. Um, another reason this intergrade friendship was able to thrive might have been because Nicholas and I did not share a school lunch hour. As you know, junior high lunch hour is no joke, uh, nor is it an hour. Um, but if it is a joke, it is usually one at your or another seventh grader's expense. And if it is an hour, which it isn't, uh, it is made to feel longer by the deep connectivity you create with the poor souls you lean on to get through it. For me, those poor souls were Dave and Jeff. Holdovers, I now thought of them as, from a far distant time and place called elementary school. Dave and Jeff and I had no choice but to stick together uh, each lunch hour, drawing out our modest gustatory duties before being cast out into the asphalt expanse of the outdoor playground where our peers were literally bouncing off each other, exercising both their growing bodies and social skills while we shuffled around the perimeter discussing what we felt were the important issues in life. Crushes, gripes. What was the best segment of the song cycle at the end of They Might Be Giants, Apollo 18? <laughs> One such lunch hour, I announced the news that my eighth grade friend Nicholas had done the unthinkable. He had acquired a girlfriend. And not a Canadian one, either. Uh, one from the very school within which we sat. I didn't need to say much else because everyone realized what this meant. This girl would have friends. And these friends would also be requiring, or at least considering, boyfriends. In short, we were being called up to the majors. What followed was a cryptic, behind-the-scenes negotiation that Dave and Jeff and I were only tangentially involved in, if at all. We were wise enough to know that our opinions during this process were not extremely relevant. These were eighth-grade girls. Their intelligence, their maturity, was so far beyond ours. Besides, no matter what way this thing shook out, it would be a major win for each of us as long as we stuck together. After school and weekend, co-ed hangouts became highly charged. And you can bet your braces that the rigor with which we reviewed the play-by-play -play game tapes of each social interaction during lunch hour far surpassed the rigor we applied to pre-algebra the very next period by a factor of X. 
After a few weeks, the results came in. Jeff earned the hardest one prize, the ringleader, a wickedly sarcastic vegetarian named Louisa. <laughs> Terrifyingly self-possessed in that way, only available to confident 13-year-olds with bad home lives. Dave got matched with a mild-mannered piano prodigy named Anna, who more often than not wore Doc Martens and a black t-shirt, bearing the bewildering phrase, automatic for the people. <laughs> My proximity to Nick, I thought, must have been what won me the sweepstakes, the smart, sweet soprano named Leah, who had curly blonde hair and the most elaborate orthodonture I have ever seen. <laughs> More on that later. Uh, she, yeah. Just wait for it. I'll still be here. She was adorable, and I adored her. She lived in a part of the Chicago suburb that my elementary school district had not encompassed. Her house seemed almost a mansion in comparison to the bungalow where I grew up. Her GPA floated in a region I could only dream of. She was a total mystery to me. But for two and a half months during 1992, the two most important things in my life were Leah Warner and Leah Warner's mouth. <laughs> and not just the interior of her mouth. Uh, that cave of secrets where the climax of our story will take place. But also the things that came out of it. She had the kind of widely expressive adolescent female voice you could listen to forever. Especially if you had access to the rich fidelity of a 1990s Ameritic landline. The receiver of witch's earpiece could become so warmed to one's body temperature, so comfortably cradled between one shoulder and ear so as to become almost non-existent. All that remained was that voice and the mouth it emerged from. A mouth that I, me, Seth, had been granted a special sort of access to. <laughs> what I'm trying to say is that for me, the syntactical content of these phone conversations was not what determined their intimacy. So you may forgive me for all of the times I hung up the phone feeling that I didn't remember a single thing we had talked about. However, this was not the case one night when I hung up with the distinct feeling that only the members of the, our friend group of the coupled variety were invited to a party at Leah's house at the end of the month. The invitation was extended with a level of discretion and care that let me know that this had the potential to be a very special kind of party, especially where it came to mouths. <laughs> Once the initial panic wore off, I sprung into action with fervent lunch hour strategy sessions with Dave and Jeff. We must do what we could to contribute to the atmosphere of this party such that a certain goal could be met, and that goal was to do a French kiss. Only weeks into our cross-generational 7th-slash-8th-grade relationships, the hubris had already set in. We had become spoiled, inured to the pleasure of regular kisses. We were ready for the next step. But it wasn't going to happen without a little initiative. Didn't Nicholas's older brother have a bottle of Ralph Lauren cologne in the dresser? What noticeably more elaborate breath-freshening technology could we marshal toward our cots? At last, we landed on a fail-proof plan. Using the invaluable resource of Jeff's older brother's collection of compact discs and records, we would collaborate to compile an audio cassette that would not only cast a romantic spell over the proceedings, but through its meticulously programmed sequence of songs would, in effect, set a steady course for a majestic make-out ship that would set sail and carry us boldly across the English Channel to the country whose style of kissing we pursued. France, you guys got that one? Okay, France? Okay, cool, just making sure. As, <laughs> so I just, you know, I wanna make sure I do everything right. As the mixtape, uh, as the mixtape track sequence took shape over the course of several lunch hours, it began to feel inevitable. I was totally going to French Leah Warner. The night arrived and everything fell into place. The basement's recessed lighting was on a dimmer. 
floating down the stairway were the sounds of feminine giggling interrupted by short bursts of white noise identifiable as the spraying of the product Benaka. <laughs> we stifled grins as Jeff played, pressed play on the stereo. We knew that a useful byproduct of our mixtape strategy was that it could help us with another thorny issue, and that was timing. We knew we must avoid the appearance of a coordinated assault. <laughs> Cleverly, we would stagger our tongues. After a... <laughs> After a respectful introductory interlude to establish the mood, a song would play that would act as a personal cue to each one that this was his moment to quote-unquote slip her the tongue. For Dave, the song was Never Tear Us Apart by NXS. For Jeff, a traditionalist, the Moody Blues Nights in White Satin. And for me, a track from one of 1992's best-selling CDs and to this day one of the most popular live recordings of all time, Unplugged by Eric Clapton. The song, Tears in Heaven. <laughs> I emphasize the album's popularity for a reason. And that reason is to do my best to explain to you how 12-year-old me ended up choosing for his makeout anthem a song in which a father grieves for his dead child. <laughs> In my defense, I did not know at the time about the tragic 1991 death of Eric Clapton's son. I was not then, and I am not now, very much of an Eric Clapton fan. But the ubiquity of this particular compact disc in early 1990s Oak Park living room stereo systems is hard to overstate. The song stood out for its melancholy and sweetness. I didn't spend my time delving into the lyrics. It was clear the song conveyed a deep well of emotion equal to my feelings for a 13-year-old I had been dating for a month and a half. I won't bore you with an analysis of what I think it says about me that I mistook grief for romance, because to be honest, the song was, for me, much like my and Leah's phone conversations, more about sound than language. Ironic, then, that I was using the song for an explicitly linguistic purpose. Uh, that is, if you interpret the word linguistic from the original Latin for of or having to do with the tongue. The song's other advantage was its length, and its length was four minutes and 40 seconds. You see, during our strategy sessions, it was determined that another masterstroke of the Makeout Mixtape Initiative was that the limited duration of each track would put a governor on what for some would be the danger of overdoing it, and what for others, namely me, would be the danger of not doing it at all. Knowing I had the less than a five-minute window to commit to overcoming my lingual timidity would press me to get on with it, like an older, bolder kid waiting impatiently behind me on the ladder leading up to the highest diving platform at the Oak Park public pool as I drippily hesitate at the edge of the board, shivering, hemming, hawing. If I were, by some random coincidence, to hear this song tonight, the... <laughs> it could happen. The part that would hold the most emotional impact for me would be the part we call the middle eight, or the bridge. Because this is the part of the song I had privately decided was my point of no return, my edge of the diving board. If I had not worked up the courage by this specific time, the time that Clapton uses to sing about time itself, how it can bring you down, bend your knees, break your heart. If I couldn't make it happen by the time the bridge was over, then maybe I didn't deserve to French anyone, much less Leah Warner. But listener, it worked. <laughs> I overcame my fear of snapping one of the tiny but taut rubber bands that crisscrossed Leah's upper and lower teeth in an elaborate arrangement her orthodontist claimed would helpfully correct align her jaw and also caused a slight sibilance in her speech that so tingled and aroused me over the phone. Listener, she had painstakingly removed them. 
she was expecting me. In that moment, the full 10 seconds of enthusiastic applause from a small television studio audience in Windsor, United Kingdom that finishes the 1992 live recording of Tears in Heaven by Eric Clapton felt as if it was meant for me. Thank you very much.
Here 